0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like
0: Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm Eve O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra De Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider... Is there any planet on which Joanne Beard would agree to talk with us for this podcast? <laughs> yes,
1: and it turns out to be planet Earth, which I'm yeah. so <laughs> excited about. I love Joanne Beard. I took a class, my very first class on nonfiction, and the teacher assigned us an essay that Joanne wrote that appeared in the New, in the New Yorker in 1996. It's called "The Fourth State of Matter." This essay. It, it 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 is I, I like i get speechless just thinking about this essay it starts off relatively slowly it is so beautiful it's about personal and domestic issues it's fairly quotidian her dog is sick her husband has left she talks about her life at work her interactions with her friends there and then it veers into just entirely unexpected territory so i want to give a major spoiler alert here In our conversation with Joanne, she revealed some key surprising elements of the essay, and I'm about to do the same as a result, but first I'm gonna give anyone who hates spoilers a chance to just stop listening. Okay, I'm back. So the major twist of the story is this. In the work life that I was just mentioning, Joanne had a job in the physics department at the University of Iowa. The essay is set in 1991, When there was a mass shooting at that lab, one of Joanne's colleagues killed four other faculty members and a student on a day when Joanne happened to be at home. And it's a testament to Joanne's genius that all of these different pieces, her husband, her dog, the shooting, the aftermath, come together and feel all of a whole, even though the range of emotions and happenings that occur in its pages in its pages is truly extraordinary. Anyway, in March, I saw that Joanne has a new book of essays out called Festival Days. So I sent you, Eve, an email linking to the New Yorker essay with the subject line, this may be the best essay I've ever read. And then I said, please, 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 can we try to interview the author who has a new book out?
0: Yes. And listeners, Julie does not speak in hyperboles in case you haven't figured that out yet. So I knew when you said that that you meant it literally. You believe it may be the best essay you have ever read. Yes. So naturally, I put down what I was doing. I read the essay immediately. And it may be the best essay I've ever read. (laughs) It's extraordinary. And I could not wait to read her book. And I was not disappointed. Festival Days is a collection of nine remarkable essays that only Joanne Beard could have written.
1: Yes. Everything about her writing makes me want to study it and understand it and treasure it. We should also mention that Joanne is the author of the novel In Zanesville and the collection of essays, The Boys of My Youth. Festival Days is a New York Times book review editor's choice selection, and Joanne's work has also appeared in magazines like The New Yorker and Tin House, as well as The Best American Essays and the O. Henry Prize anthologies. She was a 2005 Guggenheim Fellow and a winner of the Whiting Award, and she teaches at Sarah Lawrence
0: College. Two of the essays in Festival Days were personal stories that were given to Joanne to tell. One is titled Werner, and it's about a man named Werner Hayflick. He's an artist, a painter, and he comes home late one night after a catering gig, goes to bed, and awakens in the middle of the night to find that his apartment building, including his own apartment, is engulfed in flames. And somehow he has to get himself out, even though he lives on a high floor and the door is blocked by fire. The entire story takes place over the space of less than 10 minutes, and I'm telling you, you live each and every one of those moments, as well as big portions of his life up until that night, and you pretty much don't breathe the entire time. The other personal story that was given to Joanne is called Sherry. It's about a woman named Sherry Tremble, and she worked for Amtrak. She was a mother of two grown daughters, and she died of metastatic breast cancer, The essay covers the three years leading up to and including her death, and what's remarkable about it is how Joanne gets deeply into Sherry's state of mind, how she sees and feels and takes in the world as Sherry did. Even though she never met Sherry, she only knows about her from her daughters. But Joanne has this extraordinary imagination that can really go anywhere, So we asked Joanne to tell us how she came to write Werner and Sherry's stories and what it was like. Here's what she said.
2: I met Werner at an art colony and I heard his story one morning as he was recounting it at the breakfast table. And I was in that moment kind of... um, experiencing some doubts about my own work, or maybe better to say, experiencing some ambition for the work I wanted to do in the future. I wanted to come up with a project for myself that would help me loosen up a little bit as a writer. And as I listened to Werner's story, which was fascinating to me, it had two aspects in it that I was really interested in. One of them was this idea of butting up against the moment of your death and having to grapple with it. And the other was the idea that the story for Werner about the fire itself was really five or maybe seven minutes in his life. So the actual narrative arc of the piece would be really brief, which I thought would help me just loosen up and tell a faster story and not get bogged down in the kind of word-by-word sentence making that I was trapped in at the time. So that's why I approached Werner with the idea of writing his story. And Sherry Tremble's story I had written a few years earlier, I didn't know Sherry, but I got to know her daughter and became interested in Sherry's story because I was interested in what it was like for her daughter to experience that. So I just, in both of these cases, asked for permission and was given it after some long consideration on both their parts. I think it took Sherry's daughter about a year to decide whether she wanted me to do it or not. And it took Warner maybe a few months and some pretty focused persuasion on my part.
0: Did writing Warner's story have the effect that you were hoping? Did it loosen up your writing?
2: No. (laughs) It didn't. It had the opposite effect, I'm afraid. (laughs) Werner's story was so much harder to write than Sherry's because she had already died and I had to get to know her through the memories of the people around her. In the case of Werner, I had the added helpful burden that I had all of Werner's version of the story. And so I had to find at some point a way to jettison Werner's description of what happened to him so that I could feel a little more free to write a new version of it. Mm -hmm. My process is not loose. I can't even let, you know, it's constricted. and, and And it was so constricted at that point in my writing life that I was really looking for a way to, relax. And when I was at this art colony, which was in Saratoga Springs, I would go in the evenings to Skidmore College, where they had this really packed reading series where every night for two weeks, you could go hear some really interesting writer read a story to you. And one night I went and Robert Stone was reading a story. Mm -hmm. It was a short passage from a story in which the main character was scuba diving. He went down deep under the water, and he had some kind of failure of his oxygen system. So the story was about him actually getting back up to the surface. It was dire in terms of the subject matter. And Robert Stone had maybe some breathing issues of his own, like emphysema or something. And so the entire experience was just... Riveting, but also terrifying. The whole audience was just holding their own breath while he was reading this. And he got to the end of it and he walked away from the podium. And I looked at my watch and I realized that we had been listening for something like seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And every other night, the readers who were reading were reading for a half hour. And what Robert Stone did in seven minutes was so amazing to me that I drove back to Yaddo that night thinking, I want to write something like that. I really, really want to do that. And it would help me. And it would be really fun and really interesting. And it was the next morning at the breakfast table that Werner did the same thing. He riveted the audience. Somebody at the breakfast table simply asked has anybody ever seen the inside of an ambulance? And nobody had except Warner who said, yeah. And he described what it looked like with his painter's memory. And then he explained why he knew what the interior of an ambulance looked like. And that's what made me feel like that morning, oh, this has just been given to me like a gift this is what I want to do. And Warner just gave me the story. So then, of course, then I had to figure out how to actually get Warner to give me the story. How'd you do that? Well, I presented a case for myself and he rightly said, no, thank you. This is my story. And it's important to me. I mean, it's important to him inside his own mind because it had something to do with how he saw the world forever after and it was personal and private and he was the only person who had seen what it looked like in the moment and he carried it with him in his memory so he didn't particularly want to share that with me but i made an argument for it and eventually he thought about it and he talked to some other people and he realized that it might be an interesting experience for him to relive it through someone else's imagination. So he gave me permission to tell it, but he didn't give me permission to publish it. We agreed that he would look at it and decide what he thought after I was finished, whether I could publish it or not. It took a few months for him to live with the version that I had written before he felt like he could let go of his own version and allow me to send it out into the world.
0: You say in your author's note that this collection of essays includes two stories in it and that those stories are essays in their own secret ways and the essays are also stories, One of the pieces in your book that you call a story is the Tomb of Wrestling, which is about a woman facing a man in her home who's trying to kill her. And rather than run, she stays in fights. And you've said that, and I'm quoting you here, except for the central premise, it is as autobiographical as anything I've ever written. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, when I wrote that story over, you know, many years, it was something that I would just pull out of my drawer and work on sometimes. I was doing the same thing I was trying to do earlier with the Werner story. I was trying to write something that only lasted about five minutes and that I could fold a longer story into somehow. And I wasn't sure how to do that. I just set it up as a problem for myself to solve, to make the writing interesting to me. So I had to fold a lot of things in there in order to keep it with me for the 20 years I kept it with me. And so I cast back into my own memory and wrote about things that happened to me in my own life as a way of just extending and extending and extending the narrative of Joan and the stranger mm-hmm. and the nominal story on the surface, which was about a home invasion that didn't last very long.
0: I can't tell you how much I admire Joanne's fortitude. The idea that she will work for 20 years on a story blows me away. I, 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 I don't know how she does it. You know, it makes me wonder things. These are questions I torture myself with all the time. Like, how do you know when something is worth sticking with? And how do you know when it's finished? And how many times do you have to silence that voice in your head that tells you to give up?
1: Yeah, I love how persistent she is. She told us that when she was first starting out as a writer, after trying poetry, she took a creative fiction workshop, which she loved. And While working full time, she was working on a novel and she kept applying to the fiction program at the Iowa Writers Workshop. And she kept getting emphatically rejected, which is just crazy to think about any writing program rejecting Joanne Beard. I know. Mind blowing. (laughs) Yeah. Finally, she applied to the nonfiction program there and she got in and she says she loved it. She found creative support and freedom and really felt at
0: home. You know, it reminds me of our conversation with Matthew Salis' in episode 50. He's written a book called Craft in the Real World, Rethinking Fiction Writing and Workshopping. And a lot of what he talks about in that book is the unhelpful or even damaging nature of traditional fiction workshops. There's so much rigidity there.
1: Yes, I think they have a lot of explaining to do. But yeah. anyway, I'm so <laughs> glad she persevered
0: and we got to talk to her about her path and her process. Oh, I am too. And, you know, one thing that really struck me when I read The Fourth State of Matter for the first time was the way she balances rumination and action. So we asked her how she goes about balancing those two elements. And here's what she said.
2: Yeah, it's a hard question to answer because it feels like it just happens in the writing. This isn't a cop-out. It's a real answer that when you sit down to do the work, if you go deep enough into your imagination, like really down there, and you're remembering and you're imagining at the same time, then something happens and the story begins to tell itself. I mean, that's not really what happens. That's just what it feels like. But your subconscious does a lot of that work for you. And I think that was true in that essay, which is a factual account. But it also Has its elements of imagination in it. But everything in there is true. And I know because it got fact checked up the wazoo. And every single thing in that piece that came out of my memory and out of my imagination was also verified.
1: Mm. How so? Because some of it is the thinking of other folks who were no longer around.
2: Yeah, well, some of the dialogue might have been made up or remembered. But I do know that there are moments in that essay where I extract some things that were found in letters later. They had a very good like victim advocacy program in Iowa at that time. And so we who were considered to be victims of that crime, we were given lots of stuff to help us understand the psychology of the person who committed the crime.
1: Yeah. So on the very last page of the final essay in Festival Days, you say, every moment of your life brings you to the moment you're experiencing now, and now, and now. Does that observation relate to your approach to storytelling?
2: I think that it does, but I also believe that it's true in an essay that you begin in one spot, like that long essay begins in Arizona, but it ends somewhere in Manhattan years before. The timeline is wonky, but... I came to it naturally. And I hope that when the reader is immersed in the essay, the timeline feels fluid to them too, that it's a now and another now and another now and another now. And some of those nows are in the past, and some of them actually are in the future. But to go back to what I said earlier, if you're writing from a deep enough spot where you're imagining and remembering accurately, the reader should be able to follow you. If you've done it correctly, the reader should be able to just move along in your wake and see what you're seeing and understand it in the same way you're understanding it.
0: To a certain extent, the pieces in this collection are about thinking, dying, and thinking about dying. <laughs> I hope that's not too reductive. but. You must have a great deal of experience thinking about thinking and thinking about dying. And we're curious, what conclusions have you reached?
2: About dying?
0: About dying about and about this deep thinking that you're describing. I'm finding myself wondering or thinking, yes. And then then I'm finding myself wondering, and how? You know, how do you get to that place?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know how you get to that place because for me, it's my job Mm -hmm. getting to that place. Well, it's why I avoid my job so much. It's why I do the other thing, teaching so much of the time and do writing so little of the time, because to go to that deep place is difficult. I don't mean that it's like emotionally difficult. I mean, it's just hard for me to corral all the stray thoughts that I have and let go of them and go down to that place that I need to be in, in order to focus. And there are a lot of writers, and I live with one, who can do their work effectively and well without having to erase the rest of the world while they're doing it. I haven't learned how to do that. So the process of writing for me is really, um, just to be frank, it's something that I avoid. And that's why this book, you know, is likely my last book. And and it's also why it's a fairly slim volume that's a collection of all my work for the last I like to say 20 years, but I think it might be 30. But let's not go there. Let's say it's 20 years. Yeah. And then to go on further to talk about dying, I think... That for some reason, I've always been a little bit obsessed with death, as many people are. And it feels like an important topic to think about and to talk about. And for me, the reason for that is because some of the people that I've loved most in the world have left early. My mother died fairly young. My close friend, Kathy, was born the same year as me. She died young. and. My colleagues in Iowa, who were the people who surrounded me for five crucial years of my life, they all died young. And so I'm sort of left with the idea of death as kind of the defining thought for me Mm -hmm. i think about it a lot and i grapple with it a lot and now i'm moving toward it just in terms of numbers and years so it's becoming even more important to me to think about how to approach it how to do it how to think about it how to make it meaningful for myself
0: A number of the essays in festival days talk about the craft of writing. And at one point you say, we have to work to create art out of life, to bring something new to each sentence, a surprise for the reader, not in a pyrotechnic way, but through intelligence, through our powers of imagination and through the rigorous refusal to waste a reader's time. Can you tell us more about that last part, the rigorous refusal to waste a reader's time? Right.
2: Well, you never want to tell a reader something that they already know. If you tell a reader too much, the work feels pre-digested, and they stop being engaged in an active way with the story. And if you don't tell them enough, Then they're at sea, and they disengage because they can't figure out what's going on. So you have to find the exact sweet spot of telling them what they don't already know and making it mean something. Because people who do mostly the kind of writing I do, which is essay writing, memoir writing, you're taking things that have already happened or that you already know And you're using them to illuminate something about the world for a reader. So in order to illuminate something new, you have to discover something new about essentially what already happened to you, what you've already lived through, what's in your past, and what is essentially irrelevant to you. You have to think about how does this matter to me and what does it mean? Mm -hmm. And you're doing that only for the writing. You're not doing it for your own life. You're doing it only for your writing. I'm going to use the fourth state of matter as an example, because I can talk about that piece pretty easily now. I can say to myself, Okay, so this guy that I knew, who I actually would have considered a friend of mine, came in one day while I was gone and killed all a bunch of people that I knew. What does that mean? Well, honestly, it doesn't mean anything. It means he came in and he killed a bunch of people, and then he killed himself. And I'm left, as many people were left, to figure out how to go on with a kind of awareness in ourselves that this sort of thing not only can happen, but has happened. So how do you take something like that, which is essentially meaningless, and infuse it with meaning? It's really, really hard. And it doesn't come easily, and it takes a long time, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work.
0: But it's also what we crave the most, right? As human beings, I think one of the things that we crave the most is to to, to turn a meaningless stream of events into some kind of narrative that makes sense
2: to us. I think that's absolutely true, and it's what I feel. I'm thinking about the book that Patrick Radden Keefe wrote before this, which was called Say Nothing. It was about many things, but the central issue was this heinous murder that occurred. I listened to that book over the course of many weeks while I was on vacation once. And at the beginning, I thought, there is no way that he's going to make me understand how something this heinous could have happened. But by the last word of the book, I fully understood it. It made a kind of psychological sense to me. And I also realized that everybody in the book, victim and perpetrator, had their own reasonable, strange story. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, given that, what I just said about Keith's book and about The Fourth State of Matter... That should mean then that I would, after the writing of The Fourth State of Matter, that I would be able to understand the mind of the murderer in that story in such a way that I could, um, that I could, I don't, I don't think forgiveness is relevant, but, but that I could, um, something. See, I'm at a loss for words. I guess maybe that is what I do mean. Understand and forgive. Mm -hmm. Did it work? Well, I'm asking myself that right now. And I'm also saying, why are you talking about this essay that you never talk about? But I am. I mean, you know, time passes and And I'm interested in it as a writing question and as a writer, but also as a reader, you know, of this other book, Say Nothing, that I'm describing. I think what I really believe is that forgiveness is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. What happens, happens. People do what they do for their own reasons. There's a lot of mental illness. And I think Patrick Keefe's book actually... The characters in his book were subjected to certain kinds of things that caused them mental illness. The murderer, in the case of the story I told, had his own version of mental illness. And many times people who commit these shootings, they really want to commit suicide and they want to justify it. So they create a scenario in which they're a victim and then they get to be a perpetrator and they get to go out in a kind of blaze of glory, which that's a direct quote from the murderer in the case of my essay. Going out in a blaze of glory. Hmm. There was no glory involved, but but I mean what's done is done. And so maybe in the final moments of his life, I could say out of generosity, I hope that he felt something good before he took his leave of us, which is also another quote from him.
1: That was very, very generous of Joanne to say, I hope he felt something good before he took his leave of us.
0: Yeah, it's extraordinary. And I got the sense that it took her a while to get to that place.
1: I was fascinated to... By her saying that forgiveness doesn't matter. What do you think she meant by it? I'm not positive, but I, you know, she says basically sort of what happened happened, whether she forgives or not. She can't change what happened. She can only try to find some kind of peace.
0: Yeah, I just love the realism of that idea. The practicality. Well, one more thing we should mention before we go. So you're not as petrified as we were. We did ask Joanne what she meant when she said Festival Days would be her last book. And not to worry, she has not decided to give up writing. She just thinks that because her process takes as long as it does, it's not likely she'll complete a whole collection. But we will see more from her. Thank
1: goodness. And on that more positive note, I'm going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us
0: on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast.
1: Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming.
0: listen to with